Well, it is good to be back, and one of the things that delights my heart is not only seeing what God is doing in Mark's heart and how he is continuing to grow into the calling God's given him, uh, and I have to tell you, there's not a pastor in the America, even the world, that I love as much as I love Mark. My family could tell you that, our board, our staff, and have been here this weekend was such a privilege. Uh, you may or may not know this, there were leaders and pastors from 25 states in Canada here this weekend. Uh, who are now back in their pulpits today, and we trust as new men, and having tasted of the glory of God and being empowered and challenged, and that is your investment in churches all across the land because of your hospitality, and I want to thank you for that. And it is, of course, back uh, good to be back and just to see these snapshots of how the Lord is working here. Last time I was here, we were over in the old building, uh, uh, nose-to-nose, crowded in that little foyer, trying to get around from one service to another. And uh, now the Lord has provided a spacious opportunity for you to reach more people and for Him to reach them, them through you for the gospel. Uh, you have a treasure in this church. I preach all over the country uh, every year, and uh, there are some places where you just really know God is moving. This is one of them. And I hope you'll steward that carefully through your ongoing prayers, your faithful involvement, uh, your gracious treatment of one another, your optimistic faith as to what the Lord wants to do next, and your availability uh, to share the gospel uh, for those who, to those who desperately need to know our Savior. Well, we've read the text. Would you bow with me one more time as we now commit this time of teaching to the Lord? Lord, we extend our worship now from song, from prayer, into now the study of the treasure of your word. Uh, I would just say to you now, Lord, that I need your Holy Spirit to once again illumine my heart and my mind to a text that is not uh, just familiar, but it is profound. And uh, you alone can make it profound in its application today. So do in me what only you can do, and through me what only you can do, and do for your people what only you can do so that we leave here in awe of the person and presence of Christ. We've already sensed and felt that. Thank you for the worship. Thank you for the heart of this church, the work that's going on all around this campus and all around the world right now because of the faithful prayers and giving of your people over many decades. And thank you that now we have lived an entire lifetime for this moment. And there's something you want to do in our hearts so that those next steps of our journey of faith will bring glory to Christ. And we commit ourselves to you and to that end as we now look to your word in Christ's name. Amen. Well, call my family twisted if you'd like, but our favorite movie is Nacho Libre. Got a few fans out there. If you hang out with us long, you're here quoting cheesy Nacho Libre lines all the time. It's almost sickening. It's a clean comedy about a Catholic friar who's responsible for food in a Mexican orphanage. But since childhood, Nacho's dream has been uh, to, to be that of a famous wrestler, and yet it's against his religion to pursue fame and fortune through vanity and violence. But he converges his dream for fame with his job of feeding the orphans through a secret life as a wrestler, wearing his uh, blue stretchy pants on a regular basis. He enters the fights, but in order to do so, he has to have a partner. So in a scene early in the movie, he accosts this skinny street guy named Stephen, who had previously been stealing the Lord's chips from him. Uh, and he was kind of uh, desperate at this point, so Stephen would do in a pinch. He wrestles him down and, and insists that he joins him, and he says this line. He says, aren't you tired of getting dirt kicked in your face? Don't you want a taste of the glory? See what it tastes like. Stephen wasn't interested at first, but after a while he conceded. 
And this vision of glory drove these two odd fellows into a hilarious journey as ragtag wrestlers and with a dream of the riches of the ring. All the while, Nacho's concealing his exploits from the nuns, the priests, the children at the orphanage, and he's using his cheap but colorful blue ligatards to do so. Well, the movie ends predictably, as you might guess, with Nacho winning the championship fight, collecting all the money, providing abundantly for the orphans, and capturing the heart of the beautiful nun, and they all lived happily ever after. (laughs) Truly inspiring. Get the video. It'll change your life. (laughs) But here's the point. You know, sometimes I get tired of the devil kicking dirt in my face, and I want a taste of the glory. I believe the devil fights us relentlessly with his most fierce weapons of discouragement and distraction and despondency at the level of our experience of the glory of Christ through prayer and the Word. And uh, in my own heart, I have been transformed and helped constantly and and over many decades by the passage we're going to look at today. It's not one I preach on often, but one I felt I wanted to share with you today. And it comes from the book of 2 Corinthians. And I would say the Lord helped me at a time when the devil was kicking dirt in my face through this book. I'd come to church, my first major pastoral assignment in California, a church where this, this pastor had been there for 28 years. The church had grown from 60 to 6,000 during that time. But during the final eight years of his ministry, it was discovered he had covered up a year-long extramarital affair. Uh, the church was devastated when this revelation uh, came to the forefront. Uh, they lost hundreds and hundreds of people, cut a million and a half out of their budget. They were embroiled in a $25 million lawsuit over a church discipline case. And at the ripe age of 30, I was called as their next senior pastor. They had not had an interim. I obviously became the interim. I was there four years, but I was there as long as he was because my four years in dog years equaled his 28 years. <laughs> and we've all had our dog years, right? Uh, Let's all bark for Jesus. No, we're not going to do that. But uh, we've all had our dog years. No doubt about it. I'll be honest with you. About three years into it, my wife and I were uh, looking for something else to do. I'd already studied other career paths. I decided if this is what it's like, I'm going to let someone else do it. I'll just go get a real job, make real money, and support another guy. Pray for him and hope he'll make it. But, you know, the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. And even though I let go, the Lord didn't. And I'll be honest with you, the thing that he used to grip me and hold on to me more than anything else was the verse-by-verse study of the book of 2 Corinthians, where Paul opens his heart more transparently than any book of the New Testament. He is writing to the Corinthian church, which was admittedly his problem child. He spent 18 months of his life there planning this church, but they just had a lot of struggles with the culture around them. And he wrote them multiple letters. We have two of them captured in the inspired text. This was the the last letter he wrote to them. And he was writing now to defend his apostleship in the face of false teachers who had come into the church. And they were maligning Paul. It's been said there are two ways of elevating yourself, either by your own merits or by taking advantage of the weakness of others. And they were maligning Paul big time. They even made fun of his looks. History tells us that he uh, had a big nose. He was knock-kneed. He was short, stubby, and bald. Uh, All of those aren't good traits except the last one, which is a wonderful trait, of course. Uh, 
you know, they, they, they uh, criticized his preaching. They said he was fickle. He was going to come. Now he's not coming. Every little avenue they could use to undermine his apostleship for the sake of winning the hearts of the Corinthians away to their false teaching, they tried it. So Paul had to open his heart and he had to, in a sense, win them back to himself, help them understand the nature of authentic ministry so that he could win them back to Christ and the gospel. And to do so, he says things, you know, I, I normally wouldn't say this, Henderson some paraphrase, but I just got to tell you, this is how it is. And he opens his heart about what it really means to be a servant of Christ. Commentators will tell you that the section we're in right now is really the core of the book in terms of what Paul was trying to communicate. And I would suggest to you that these verses we're looking at today, you might say, are the apple seed of the apple core of the apple of, of ministry. So how do you define ministry? What is ministry? Uh, how many of you, by the way, are in full-time ministry? Let's see your hands. All right, those of you who didn't raise your hands gave me the wrong answer. I hate to tell you, you're in full-time ministry if you're a, a servant and a, a disciple of Jesus Christ, aren't you? Turn to your neighbor say, you're in full-time ministry. All right, just make sure they don't forget that. We are. You say, well, no, I'm, a, I'm an engineer. You know, I'm a coach. Uh, I'm an accountant. That, that's your vocation. But your avocation is a minister of Jesus Christ. So now that we're all in ministry, <laughs> that was easy. Uh, now that we're all in ministry, the question is, what is ministry? What is it? Well, we'd say, well, the ministry is what I did last hour. I changed diapers in the nursery. That's my gig every Sunday. Or I helped hand out, uh, you know, do we have bulletins here? Oh, you do. I just didn't get one. I got to read that. Uh, I ha- helped hand out bulletins when people came in, or I- I'm helping run the tech behind the scenes uh, every other week, whatever it is, or I'm trying to figure out my gifts so I can make a difference here. And by the way, those are all good things. But I would suggest to you that Paul gives us in this text a transcendent understanding of what ministry is that is so powerful. He can say about it, we do not lose heart. And I got to tell you, When I was 33 years old, the same year Jesus was crucified, (laughs) as a pastor, I thought I was having my own. And it was this definition of ministry that riveted my heart and helped me understand the connection that it has to prayer and the Word and what it means to serve Christ honorably. So I hope it will be of help to you. Now, again, in the immediate context, Paul has been telling the story of Moses' experience of the glory of God. Going back to Exodus, you know it. He went up to the mount to receive revelation of truth from God, to be in the presence of God. He came down from that mount, and he was radiant. I call him glowing Moses, such that he had to wear a veil. The glory was so powerful, and, of course, it was fading. So another reason for his veil, and Paul reminds these readers about this, but basically he says, again, Henderson paraphrase, Moses had nothing on us. Because that was the old covenant. It was about Moses. Now we're in the new covenant and it involves every one of us. That was about truth written on tablets of stone. Now that truth by the Holy Spirit has been written on our hearts. Uh, That was about law and this is about the glory of Christ. And as he makes this contrast, he just pulls us all in and he says, this is the heart of what it means to be a minister of Jesus for all of us who have been called. This new covenant by the spirit written on hearts, never fading, always transforming. And let me just give you this little nugget. If I could define ministry, 
beyond just the activities of preaching or serving or administrating, whatever it is you do and I do, it really is this. It is experiencing and expressing the glory of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit as ministers of the new covenant. Experiencing and expressing the glory of Jesus Christ. And Eric and the team has already kind of activated our thinking about this idea of glory. But that's what it is. It's not trying harder for Jesus. It's not trying to make things happen for the kingdom of God. It's not just being disciplined and faithful to show up and do my part. It's simply experiencing the glory of Jesus on a regular basis and then allowing the overflow of the fruit of his life and his glory to transform this society. And on that point, there's a lot at stake in this idea. You look around, we, we live in a dark day, don't we? You hear this story about this pastor being shot. And that story and stories like it are being replicated all across our country, all across our world. Uh, you see the moral decay. You, you hear stories of families falling apart. And you say, uh, Pastor Henderson, man, we got a darkness problem out there. Well, let me just say, we don't really have a darkness problem. We have a light problem. Because <laughs> light always penetrates darkness. And I, and I say to people all the time, kind of funny, but I say, you know, the problem out there isn't Osama, Obama, or your mama, right? Now, now you can blame anybody you want for the ills of society, but it, it's not the terrorists, and it's not the politicians, and it's not your sweet mama who dropped you on the head when you were a kid, and I'm sorry about that, but it's not any of that. It, it is the fact that we are not experiencing and expressing the glory of Jesus Christ as we ought, because light will penetrate darkness. And so this just isn't about, you know, spicing up your devotional life, although we hope this will help. But this is really about the essence of what it means when we get together, what it means when I get up every day and I think about being a Christ follower. Because I believe Paul, in a horrendous moment in his life, was able to understand and then communicate to us the essence of what it means to be ministers of the gospel. Now, we've had some definitions of glory on the screen, meditated on them. We're going to talk about that word a bit. I want to just share my definition of it with you in just a minute. But I remember when I was in college, and you're going to see it. We're going to leave it there for a minute. You can start writing it down. When I was in college, our spiritual cheerleader in our chapel services, actually Liberty University years ago, would stand up every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, pound his chest at the beginning of chapel and say, well, glory. Now, I was a college student. I didn't know what that meant. That's some old-fashioned word, and he's all excited about it, and God bless him. In fact, we'd make fun of him in the dorms. Well, glory, you know. We didn't know what that was. But now it captivates my heart. And really, the two-sided coin, very practically of this, it is the the magnification of the person of Christ among his people. We've been doing that this morning, right? We've been singing Hosanna and holy and exalting his name and recognizing his greatness and his majesty in our midst and in our hearts. But it is also the manifestation of the presence of Christ among his people. And that really is what ministry is. We magnify him and the greatness of who he is. And he manifests his life and his power in us and through us. And that's how the world becomes transformed. So as it relates to prayer, I want us to talk about this idea. Because to be honest, a lot of us, myself included, find it very easy just to serve up leftovers in our prayer life. Just to do what we've always done. You know, I got my list and I got my problems and bang, 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 here you go, Lord, fix it all. And, and I'll call you later if I hit a crisis, right? 
Uh, I think of the book of Malachi where uh, the, the children of Israel are going through the motions of worship. And you remember perhaps what God said to them. He said, hold the phone, stop this. He said, you know, you, you wouldn't bring your king or something like this. You, yeah, you look good on the outside, but you're bringing me, you know, three-legged lambs, one-eyed bulls, one-winged doves, and, and you're calling this worship. This is not worthy of my name. And I would suggest to you that many of us in our prayer lives are just doing what we've always learned and what we've always done, and it's a yawner on a daily basis, and it's perfunctory, and it's not meaningful, and we're serving God leftovers, and deep within our hearts, we know there's got to be something more. It can't just be this, and I believe what Paul is unpacking for us here can enliven and transform our prayer lives and can help us become those agents of transformation in this world. And so let's look at it. Number one of five keys, really, what I want you to see of the glory of God in prayer and how the Lord wants to work in our hearts to help us experience the core of what ministry is. Number one, this idea is collective and individual. Paul begins verse 18, where we're really going to focus now, and we all, or as they say down south, and all y'all, right? That means, first of all, every one of us, not just Moses, as we already said, every one of us has access into this glory. Mark has no special privilege. He does, he's not glory level A and you're glory level C. No, we all have equal access. The ground is level at the foot of the cross, right? We all, through the work of Jesus Christ, friends, this is the good news of the gospel. When he died on the cross from heaven to earth, God's initiative to man, he tore that veil in two, and now we have free access into the holy of holies through the finished work of Jesus Christ and on the merits of his blood. We all. And that's not only a reference to our individual privilege, it's also a reference to our corporate privilege. I'm sure Mark has communicated this. It's a strong conviction for me, the reminder that all of these letters were written to the church. They were received in community. No one had their own individual copy of the Bible at the moment. And so everything that was said, they instinctively applied to themselves as a community. And I think Paul is reminding us it's not only an individual privilege, but it's a collective privilege. And tonight, by the way, when you come, you will know that privilege. I say it often, and and Mark's probably reminded you as well, that when it comes to prayer, people ask, which is more important, private prayer or corporate prayer? My answer is always yes. It's like asking which leg do you need to walk on more, your right leg or your left leg? And we need both. You can't just try to do this on your own, but, you know, I have learned more about how to pray by praying with others than I have by trying to just slug it out on my own. We need both. That's why you got to be here tonight. In some ways, it's the most important gathering of the month because we all are going to behold the glory of the Lord, and we need that experience together. And you do that on Sundays. But I think Paul is really referring to this, this idea of Moses, both the presence of God and the revelation of his truth into an intimate experience. And that is the second thought, intimate. It is intimate. Notice what he says, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. Now, again, this idea of glory is is the idea of God's face and his presence. Uh, This is not just coming to God with, with, again, a, a list of everything I want him to fix for my convenience and comfort. This is coming to God for who he is. You've been taught this here at this church, I know. It's the difference between coming into prayer, just seeking God's hand versus his face. And I say it often is if all you ever do is seek his hand, you may miss his face. But if you come to seek his face, he will be glad to open his hand. 
His hand is mighty and powerful in the hearts of those who seek him. And this is really about the idea, Paul, saying we are beholding his glory. We are pursuing his presence. We are enjoying his intimacy. Some of your versions say as in a mirror. Uh, maybe you've noticed that. And again, that reference from that particular uh, manuscript is really the idea of Paul saying as best as we can this side of heaven, as clear as it can get this side of glory. In a sense, the old covenant was a foretaste of this glory. This glory is a foretaste of the next glory. But as in a mirror, my wife has one of those eight times mirrors. Any of you ladies have one of those things? You, you look nice. Good job. Yeah, it, it works for you. Uh, it makes her beautiful. Well, it doesn't make her beautiful. She uses it to make herself beautiful every day. I walk by that thing every once in a while, and you talk about depressing, man. I mean, my nose looks like the craters of the moon. I'm thinking, how did that happen, right? Uh, the only good news is there's a little peach fuzz up top, and I say, be blessed and multiply there, brothers. Do what you got to do and uh, keep on going. But uh, Paul says, as in a mirror. They, it was just polished metal back then. But again, Paul is saying, as best as we can see this side of eternity, we are enjoying that intimacy with Christ. And that's what God wants us to understand about this idea of ministry. Thirdly, it's transforming. He says we are being transformed. It's the, the continuous active idea here. It's not just something that happened when we got saved, but we are constantly being transformed. Aren't you grateful you're not what you used to be? But aren't you grateful you're still not what you will be? And God is still in process of making you like Jesus. This is the essence of prayer. It changes us, doesn't it? When we really understand prayer, again, it's not just a list of ailments and problems. It's being transformed in his presence. Donald Gray Barnhouse, uh, who pastored 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia for years, uh, had an experience that Chuck Swindoll actually recounts, where in the midst of a series on prayer, he stood up one morning and he said, Beloved, I'm here to tell you, prayer changes nothing. And you can almost hear the air go out of the room as if he'd gone heretical. Now, we know God uses prayer to change things. I mean, again, James says you have not because you what? You ask not. God is using prayer as the means by which he has, in his goodness, decided to provide and work. But Barnhouse is really saying the essence of prayer is to change us, to change us. Let me give you a couple of illustrations, if you don't mind. Hold your place here in 2 Corinthians and, and turn with me back to Matthew 5, just for a moment. And you know the, the, this passage, it's the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is giving kind of the, the ground rules and the lifestyle of his kingdom followers. And he says in Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 43, You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's the standard line, Jesus says. We're changing that. All right? I say to you, Love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and catch this, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Pause. Hmm, what's that look like? <laughs> you got anybody persecuting you or anybody spitefully using you? I mean, they're just slaying you, they're hurting you, they're maligning you. Uh, Jesus, pray for them. Well, what do I pray? Poke their eyes out, God, right? <laughs> Strike them with lightning. I mean, hopefully you're praying they'll get saved, right? But here's what's interesting. Look at the text. Next two words. Pray for them. Why? That you. That you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He goes on to talk about your Father's character. He makes the sun rise on the evil and the good, sends rain. If you only love those who love you, you're no better than a tax collector. You only uh, greet those who greet you, no better than a tax collector. That's not too good. But look at verse 48. Therefore you... 
You shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. That verse tells me that when I'm in a painful situation and people are hurting me and there is persecution and there is difficulty and I pray, the focus of that is what God's wanting to do in me to make me more like himself. Wow. Aren't you grateful God gives us that grace? That we can change? Now, these, uh, these days, the news is marked by political interest. Anybody notice that? There's the election stuff going on. Yeah, I've noticed. So we all think of 1 Timothy. That's the other verse I want you to glance at briefly. 1 Timothy chapter 2. It's the Magna Carta of church life and structure. And the first thing Paul tells Timothy to do is not create a program or an activity or print a bulletin, which I will get between services, but it is to pray, Timothy, lead the church in prayer. So 1 Timothy chapter 2, he says, Therefore, first of all, Timothy, I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, giving of thanks be made for all men, and you know verse 2, and for kings and all who are in authority. Stop. Hmm. How are we going to pray for them? Well, (laughs) you know who was in charge in Paul's day? Nero, who would eventually behead him, by the way. Nero, who persecuted the Christians and set his own city on fire in order to turn the tide of public opinion against them to give him a reason to put them in wild skins and stick them in the Colosseum so the animals would devour them, who would take their bodies and dip them in tar and use them to light his palace. That's Paul's king at the time. So how do you pray for him? Hmm, I got some ideas. How do we pray for our leaders? I remember, man, I remember when I was at the church and that guy suing the church for $25 million. Uh, I know how I prayed for him. Lord, take him home. Put us all out of our misery, will you? Right? We've all had those feelings. What's Paul saying is going to happen as we're praying for those who are in authority? Notice the next two words, that we. That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. God's purpose is to bring people to the knowledge of the truth, and he doesn't do it through kings and politicians, the Republicans and Democrats. He does it through a church that is being transformed as they are praying. Isn't that an amazing thought? God wants to change us. I tell in my book, Transforming Prayer, the story you probably heard before, the little boy who wanted to go out to play uh, one evening after dinner, but his dad was already parked in the easy chair, relaxing after a hard day, reading the newspaper, and he had a delay tactic. The father said, son, we'll go out to play, but I just need a break here. Tore a piece of paper, uh, a page out of the newspaper he was reading that had a picture of the globe on it. And he said, son, I'm going to tear this up in a lot of pieces. You go tape it together. And when you get a tape, come back and we'll go out to play. He said, man, I think I bought myself 30 minutes here. My son doesn't know geography. So the boy ran off. Five minutes later, he's back. Dad, I got it taped together. He said, you got to be kidding, Johnny. How did you do that? He said, well, dad, it was easy. Because on the back side of that piece of paper you tore up was a big picture of a man's face. And all I did was tape the man's face together and turn it over. He said, Dad, when I got the man right, I got the world right. You know, sometimes, church, we're so busy trying to use prayer to make everything else right. God wants to make us right. He wants us to be transformed in his presence. From glory to glory. The greater ongoing potential of being 
like Jesus in this world. And that's the next point. It is a Christ-centered transformation, isn't it? It says, into the same image. We've all worn the WWJD bracelet, bumper sticker, whatever it is. But, you know, it's not just about doing what Jesus did. It's becoming who Jesus is. Because when we become like Jesus, we will live like Jesus. He will be living his life out through us. The glory of what we are experiencing in his presence will be shown in the midst of the darkness. And it will point people to the centrality of Jesus Christ. And finally, it's supernatural. I love this thought, even by the Spirit of the Lord. And so Paul kind of, almost like a sandwich, he opens it up in verse 17, where the Lord is the Spirit, there's liberty, or where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. And all this change is happening by the Spirit of the Lord. This is the supernatural broker of the new covenant, the indwelling Spirit of God. It is a supernatural work. You can't pray, I can't pray. Tonight, we can't just show up and say, well, we're going to figure this out and do it on our strength. No, uh, we need to invite the Holy Spirit. Come do what you just so instinctively want to do, and that is to draw us into the presence of the Savior and make us like him. That is your sufficient work in us. Most of us have read the story, seen the movie, uh, blind side of Michael Orr, the ball player who had a underprivileged, uh, you know, experience growing up, was taken in by this family. Uh, they wanted to help him get his grades up so he could play ball. And so what did they do? They hired a full-time, what, tutor, right, Miss Sue? And she spent extraordinary amounts of time helping Michael. He eventually, as you know, went on to play college ball, plays for the, the Ravens today. That's the power of a tutor. Now, here's the deal, and you know this. When it comes to prayer, we have a 24-7 tutor. And he doesn't stop in and visit us every once in a while. He is within us. And he is the spirit of prayer. And Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 8 that he is the one teaching us to pray, sometimes in ways that we cannot even cognitively understand or express. But he's doing it to to bring us into the will of God and conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. Isn't that a wonderful thought? He wants us to know him more than we want to, and he's given us all the means by which to do it. As we receive the revelation of him in his word, and as his spirit brings us into life-changing experiences of his presence. Recently reread the book, uh, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Not a Christian book. It's a Jewish psychiatrist who gives the account of his years and months in the concentration camps of Nazi Germany. Horrific, horrific stories. And he basically says, they took everything from me. My family, my home, my career, my identity, my friends, my health, my dignity. But there's one thing they could not take from me, and that was the ability and power to choose how I'm going to respond in any given situation. And if a Jewish psychiatrist could discover that idea, we certainly have it because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. It doesn't matter what we're going through, what we're facing. In fact, if you go later into chapter 4, Paul's talking about all the stuff he's going through. He, he says in chapter 4, and I, I just, I'll just i read it to you, beginning of verse 8, he says, we're afflicted, we are uh, perplexed, we are persecuted, uh, we are struck down. But he comes back and he says, in the midst of that, uh, we are not crushed, we are not, uh, we are not driven to despair, we are not forsaken. In fact, the life of Jesus is being manifested in us because that's the implication of where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. There's nothing that can stop this experience of the glory of Christ. No circumstance, no persecution, no problem, no perplexity. Every day I can experience and express the glory of Jesus Christ. 
I love missions, and uh, as Pastor Mark does, as a senior pastor for 25 years, had the joy of going to about 45 countries. Now, some of those were airports, but I count them, you know. I, I was in Frankfurt Airport. That's Germany, pretty much, you know. So, uh, but, but just an amazing opportunity. And, and so I've kind of carried that on. And in recent days, we've connected into China where the, 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 the greatest spiritual revival in the world is taking place right now. Thousands of churches being planted every day right under the nose of the oppressive communist government uh, through these house churches. And I'm so reminded that even there in this nation, you cannot stop the freedom of the Holy Spirit and what people have access to no matter what context they're in. And that is the glory of Jesus Christ. That is our freedom, friends. And it is a supernatural work into which God wants us to to step. So let me conclude with five points. That's hard to believe. So I've already written down five points. Well, uh, we're going to multiply it real quickly. You don't even have to write these down. I just want to inspire you as we wrap up. So when we get a taste of the glory, when we pray in a new way, when we understand the heart of what it means to minister, oh, yesterday I'm still going to show up and I'm going to, you know, do the crafts with the third graders. And this week I'm still going to volunteer to help on campus here and and I'm going to get involved in my high school ministry again. But but that's not what it's all about. It's about just experiencing and expressing the glory of Jesus Christ underneath all that as the essence of ministry. What happens? Well, five things. They all rhyme because I went to seminary and I got that brain damage thing, you know? But first of all, God is glorified. Say that with me. God is glorified because the ultimate purpose of this experience is not only experiencing his glory, but extolling his glory. That's why at the end of that model prayer, Matthew gives us that that grand, grand finale. For thine is the what? The kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That's the purpose of prayer. When my book, Transforming Prayer, came out, we had a bunch of different interviews and had one with a lady in Portland over the phone, and I don't think she'd been tasting the glory that day. She wasn't in a very good mood. And and toward the end of the interview, she asked a question, which I think she probably posed as a trick question of sorts, had a little bit of an edge in her voice. She said, well, Pastor Henderson, what is the purpose of prayer then? And I hadn't anticipated that question, and you know the Lord helps us all, and you would have said the same thing. I said, well... The purpose of prayer is the purpose of everything. And you've been taught, well, you know this, it is the glory of God, isn't it? And I remember reading recently that the only thing that motivates God is his own glory. And it made me ask, what motivates me when I pray? Is it just a mechanism to avoid pain? Is it just a way to have a kind of a therapeutic download? Again, prayer is such a privilege and a joy, but it ultimately has to be about his glory, doesn't it? About his glory. When we pray this way, God is glorified in our lives and in our midst in ways that are extraordinary. Secondly, I am sanctified. God is glorified and I am sanctified. We've already seen it. I'm made like Jesus and he is manifesting his life through me. So I'm set apart to God. I'm made more like Christ. God is glorified. I am sanctified. Some of you are already trying to guess the next word. I know your ways, all right? Thirdly, we are edified. The church is built up. And as Paul gets into chapter 4, that's what he says. Seeing we've been mercied like this, aren't you glad you haven't received what you deserve, by the way? I am. Paul couldn't get over it. And this extravagant mercy, this is the ministry. Seeing, therefore, we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. We are constantly strengthened. We are useful to the Lord. We are profitable to his kingdom. We are strong in the power of his might. We are built up. 
But fourthly, not only is God glorified, I'm sanctified, we're edified, but the world is mystified. They are mystified. They can't get it. And that's really what Paul, just in summary fashion, unpacks in these next verses in chapter 4. He says, we're not playing fast and loose with the word of God, but by the manifest, listen to this, by the manifestation of truth, we are commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Did you catch that? That's the ministry. I show up at work, they don't get it. Something going on in that dude's cubicle. He's not living like the rest of us. He's not, he's not falling apart in the midst of these problems. He, he's not losing his temper with the boss. Something, something's inside him and about him that, that we don't get. That's good. Because their conscience is being affected by this manifestation of the truth of the glory of Christ. And he goes on to, to say, we don't preach ourselves, but Christ is Lord. And, and I love this as he gets into verse 6. If you see it there, he said, and God who said, this is pretty authoritative, by the way, let light shine out of darkness. Did that work when he said that? Yeah. That God has now given us the light, has, has spoken in our hearts, moved in our hearts, given us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Verse 7 Therefore, what does he tell us? We have this treasure now in jars of clay to show that the excellence of the power, it's not of us, but it's of God. The world is mystified. It's not about us. We're, we're not the coolest thing in town. We're not trying to impress them. Paul says, look at when you were called. Pfft. That's not exactly how he said it, but you know, that's a, what were you? He says, we're jars of clay. Two kinds of jars back in the day. You remember this perhaps. The nice jars for your jewelry and your goodies, kind of like the jewelry box of our day. And then the common jars, useful for two things, trash and human waste. That's it. Paul says that's what we are, apart from the glory. So that makes you, apart from this glory, a trash can or a toilet. Very simple. So turn to your neighbor and humble him right now. Would you just see either one? Take your pick. Your trash can or your toilet. Uh, no biggie, right? But Paul says, that's the, that's the mystifying reality here. It's not about us. In fact, Paul learned the weaker I am, the stronger he is. And so if we can just get over ourselves and realize it's not about what we're doing for Jesus, how great we are, how talented we are, how rich we are, how much we can know. It's about experiencing, expressing the glory of God through clay pots that the world will be mystified by what they see. I love uh, in the New Testament when it talks about an unbeliever coming into church, 1 Corinthians 14. It says the secrets of their heart are revealed and they fall on their face and they say, man, that media presentation was incredible. That preacher was interesting. Now what do they say? The glory of God is among you. They open their hearts, say, God is truly among you. Friends, this is what is at stake. And you have a beautiful building, great facilities, marvelous programs, tremendous staff. But what you want people walking out of here saying is that Jesus is there. And that becomes pervasive when Jesus is here and we are experiencing his glory and manifesting that glory to the world. And finally, not only is God glorified, I'm sanctified, we're edified, the world is mystified, but the enemy is notified. Amen? We are doing a spiritual battle in spiritual, with spiritual power using supernatural weapons. And folks, it is a fight and it is a battle. Jim Simbola says the devil is not terribly frightened by our human efforts and credentials, but he knows his kingdom will be damaged when we begin to lift our hearts to God. 
And I love the way another writer says it, and with this I close. He says, the one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. Now, we're not talking about, again, just the, the pop call to God and the grocery list, but more than that, to keep us from really experiencing what Paul's talking about here. The devil will fight you, by the way, at this point. And when you begin to pray, you do pick a fight with the devil at a whole new level. But I'm in. How about you? Right? Because we are called to be praying menaces to the devil. Turn to your neighbor say, be a praying menace. Amen. That's what it's all about. Here's what the writer says. The devil fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. Isn't that what you want in your life, your family, your home, this church? That God will be glorified, I will be sanctified, we will be edified, uh, that truly the world will be mystified and the end will be notified as we all with unveiled face are beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed to glory to glory, even into that same image by the Spirit of the Lord. Lord, I believe here at College Park, you are just beginning the story of your glory. And, Lord, it will unfold one heart at a time. So we give you our hearts today. And for anyone here who's not met this Savior, Lord, I believe in their hearts they are saying God is truly among you. Let this be the day in which they understand the invitation of the gospel. And let this also be a day in which we, again, determine that we will walk in the glory of that invitation. For Jesus and his sake we pray. Amen.